Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. This is a keynote presentation delivered by myself and Paul Gillen at the PRSA Digital Impact Conference in New York City on Thursday, May 5th, 2011. Can I see a show of hands? How many of you are in B2B communications? Wowie zowie. So, so uh, you know, after... 12 people come up to you and say you should write a book on that. Finally, you write the book, right? This has been our experience, Paul and mine. Um, We work with uh, organizations. We do a lot of trainings. And inevitably, somebody in the back of the room raises their hand and says, what about B2B? How does this apply to organizations that sell to other businesses rather than consumers? And uh, that's what we're going to talk about in this, this afternoon session. We got this idea for the book uh, actually about two years ago at a conference very much like this where there was lots of great social media examples about how to sell blue jeans and candy and diet soda uh, and such using social media. And somebody in the audience finally stuck up their hand and said, uh, how does this apply to B2B? And the uh, speaker said, well, you can do all this too. You could have 16 million fans on Facebook. And, and then he said, how many of you in this audience are primarily B2B? Over half the hands in an audience of 400 people went up. And I was standing in the back of the room and I thought, hmm, uh, these are not the same things. B2B and B2C are actually quite different. What we dramatized in the book and we hope to uh, make the point to you today is how different these disciplines really are and how differently social media tools should be applied to them. Uh, meet Indium Corporation. Has anybody ever heard of Indium Corporation? Of course you haven't. Indium Corporation makes solder flux. Solder flux. That's stuff that you use to sweat pipes, right? Except they make it for very, very high-end industrial applications. It's used to make printed circuit boards. Got about 500 people. They're based in upstate New York. And uh, their Marcom director, Rick Short, is a very smart guy about social media. And he came up with an idea about a year and a half ago. I uh, wanted to dominate keywords in the solder flux industrial solder flux area. What are some of the keywords, Eric? Well, rather than buy media from someone else, they decided that they would become the media themselves. Uh, you know, the difference between advertising and blogging is kind of like the difference between an expense and an asset, right? An ad stops delivering value when you stop buying it. But a blog with useful content that consumers can use to make informed purchasing decisions will generate leads into perpetuity. Uh, What they're doing is they're leveraging their unique knowledge of their little corner of the industry to connect with buyers through search engines when they have an immediate purchasing need. Um, The research shows that most buyers begin the B2B purchasing process through search, so they write these blog posts that are designed to answer buyer-oriented questions. Um, And I'll give you a few examples of some of the titles from their blog. These are actual blog posts. These are titles. Wave soldering flux deactivation temperatures explained. Now, maybe your eyes are glossing over, but for the types of customers who are going to purchase solder from them, 
they're backing up the truck, and these are the types of questions that they have. How many, how many of you have searched on gallium arsenide in the last month? <laughs> I'll read you a couple more here. Will multiple reflows damage my solder joint? Using integrated preforms for solder fortification. And they're starting to blog in Chinese now, too, right? So it's easy, it's easy to see how B2B social marketing is actually easier than B2C because there's less competition, so it's easier to get found by your customers and actually solve their problems. And of course, since the value of each sale is so much higher and there are so many fewer leads to follow up on, the upside is also higher as well, right? In the old days, these companies would buy ads in a trade publication, industry trade publication, in hopes of an 0.25% response rate. With the blog, they're basically just going right to that 0.25%. And they're getting them when they have an immediate buying need, because that's when you search. So the takeaway is, business-to-business -business marketing is really all about sales cycles. And offering business customers access to the information they need to qualify your products and services on a self-service basis is a better, more efficient way to generate leads and a practical way to accelerate sales cycles. And let's tell you about the results that Indium has had. Now they did one very smart thing, and that is that when you find an Indium engineer, and most of the blogs are written by engineers, there is an incentive on that page. If you want to get a question answered, uh, you can leave an email address and your question. You will get a personal response from that engineer. Now, the people who are looking for uh, answers about uh, waveform soldering uh, temperature problems, there aren't that many of them, but those who are are buying these products by the boatload. So those email addresses turn into leads. And what Indium saw was in the first six months a 600% increase in leads through this blogging initiative. And the best leads they've ever had, because the people who are asking these questions have a problem to solve, and they're getting the problem solved by the engineer. Just one example of how B2B can dominate search engine terms in a way that B2C companies in most cases can't. So when we were writing the book, our editor said to us, if it's not B2B, it doesn't belong in this book. So make a chart of the difference between B2B and B2C, put it on your wall, and use that as the criteria to grade every case study you're considering putting in this book. If it doesn't conform, don't, don't include it. So um, let's talk about the difference between B2B and B2C. We've got basically six that we came up with. And the first one is that B2B decisions are value-based, almost all based on value. Not often the case in B2C. A lot of B decisions are based on taste, fashion, sex appeal, impulse, price. There's all sorts of different factors that don't relate to value. But nearly every B2B decision involves how is this purchase going to make my business better? Uh, B2B purchases are made by groups, not by individuals. So you have to help build consensus amongst a group of disparate decision makers with different priorities. Um, in B2B, uh, you know, I could call up your sales rep or send an email and wait for the response, or if I could find that information on my own, whether I was an engineer or a sales rep or the CFO, or a line manager, or someone in shipping, or someone in logistics, right? Everybody's got a different question that they're asking. So if you can answer all those questions on a self-service basis in a faster amount of time than your competitor can, you're gonna have the upper hand. 
at least at the initial awareness and consideration level of the sales funnel. Have you ever heard the term bet the business? A lot of B2B decisions are bet the business kinds of decisions. Federal Express recently chose Cummins as a supplier of 1,500 hybrid engines for their trucks. That was a bet the business decision. Maybe not every B2B decision is that great, but when these decisions are made, there is often a significant amount of revenue, stock price, uh, and, and customer equity riding on these decisions. So they are very important decisions when they're made. In B2B, relationships are paramount, right? In some B2C categories, they are too, like computers, telecommunications, automotive, or travel, right? The customer's ability to get help from the customer if they have a problem does weigh into the purchasing decision. But, um, you know, in, in B2B, it's paramount. Uh, could you imagine a B2B provider outsourcing their call center offshore? I mean, it would be sudden death, right? So the factors that are going to weigh into that relationship are dependability, accessibility, um, the ability to maintain quality control, responsiveness, and these are all values that are realized through a long-term relationship. And social media is a way to demonstrate those characteristics on an ongoing basis. The sales cycle is different. The sales relationships are different. When you're a B2C company, how often does your customer have a PhD in the product that you're selling? Not very often. Happens all the time in B2B. If you're selling a process management system to a manufacturing company, there are engineers on the staff of that company who know a great deal about process control. So you have, you have a very knowledgeable, informed customer, and that means that you have to have a very knowledgeable, informed sales staff and engagement. If I'm deciding between Coke or Pepsi, uh, that's an impulse decision. It's emotional. I can make it in a minute's notice, and I don't really need any information to make that decision. Um, if you think about the world of consumer electronics, it would not be uncommon to purchase a device and then learn a month later that it doesn't do what you thought it was going to do, right? But that type of thing would never happen in B2B because over the course of the sales cycle, you have all these different stakeholders on the committee asking these different questions, right? And if you think about what Google and Facebook has done to our, attention, to our patients' thresholds, it's shortened it, right? We want to know what's happening now and what's happening now what's happening now and what's happening now, right? So if you leave a message with an account rep and have to wait for them to get back to you, right, the organization that's going to be able to answer that question quicker through whatever channel is available and whatever channel their customer's on is going to be the one that's going to have the, the upper hand. According to web usability analyst Jacob Nielsen, if people can't find the information they need to do business with you on your website, not only do you lose the business, but your reputation suffers as well, right? Which actually puts online communications squarely in the realm of PR. People, be, uh, people expect to be able to find what they need on a self-service basis on your site, and those B2B marketers that provide it will outmaneuver their competitors. If any of you are in the technology sphere and have been for a few years, you may remember about a decade ago when your mailbox every Monday would be bulging with trade publications about this thick, Computer World, Information Week, Computer Reseller News. Remember, one, IT, one uh, CIO I knew used to refer to his publications in a metric he called Stack Feet. Uh, look at it today. First of all, most of those publications aren't even around anymore. 
In fact, B2B publishing over the last two years has suffered the worst decline in advertising pages of any, uh, of any publication, any category of printed publications. There's a reason for that, and it's what Eric just said. B2B buyers can't wait. They need information right now, and the printed page is simply not an effective way to get it to them. So here's where the money is being spent this year. Um, if I were to invite you over to my house for dinner, uh, I would clean up my house first. I would make sure that there were some appetizers out for you when you got there. I'd ask to take your coat. I'd invite you to make yourself at home. Um, and I think we have to sort of take that same sort of sensibility online when we market in the B2B sector as well. We're nearly 20 years into the commercial availability of the internet and most websites still suck, right? I mean, we go to Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn and we interact and then we go to a website and it's just static, right? And so we split. Um, and if you look at where, where the money's being spent this year, I think rightly so. If you're a B2B, your website is the most important piece of your online marketing arsenal because that's where you have the least resistance to lead generation and conversion, e-commerce conversion, right? So here you see the money is going in that direction, which is nice to see. The second thing I think that's noteworthy here is the importance of email, right? As excited as we all are about social media, in this country at least, actually everywhere in the world except China, according to the latest global research, people still find their email more important. They may like to go to fa Facebook and Twitter and waste time there, but if you ask them, I'm gonna lock you on a desert, I'm gonna send you away to a desert island, you get one channel, what is it? At this point, everywhere but China, they would take their email. So don't cut off your nose to spite your face. Social's great, it's important, but the meat and potatoes of B2B online marketing is your website and email. Yeah, it's boring. And it's boring like this. Blogs, the number one most popular tool, social tool, of, uh, of B2B marketers. This is according to B2B Magazine research. Incidentally, B2B Magazine also found in uh, research early this year that uh, their audience, B2B marketers, are actually increasing their investment in email, just to validate what Eric said. Why are blogs so popular? Well, they rock on search. Search engines love blogs, and we could spend an hour just talking about that. They do everything right. They also uh, bring qualified buyers to your website. And when connected closely to your website, they're a great way to act as a magnet. Chances are your website doesn't act as a magnet because your website is mainly promotional. It's telling people about your products and about your company. But if your blog is set up to demonstrate thought leadership in your industry, then that's what attracts the qualified buyers because they're people who are looking for solutions. So blogs are, if you, if you are a B2B company and you don't have a blog, why? Uh, but still, it's amazing how many don't. I recently did a, um, a sampling of 100 uh, business partners of a major technology company and found that only 15 of them had blogs. Now, these companies all have domain expertise. Why are they not showing off in a way that 80% of the buyers start the, process, the buying process, which is through a search engine? And blogs are a really practical way to wake up a static site. If you have a static site and you want to be able to publish fresh content to it, integrating a blog and using it as a uh, um, content uh, management platform is a practical way to be able to add new content on a regular basis and wake up the site so that there's something to tweet about According, and something to I'm Facebook sorry. about and something to 
post to your LinkedIn groups. According to HubSpot, uh, companies' websites with blogs generate nearly twice as many inbound links as sites without blogs. Why would you not be doing this? Two different kinds of marketing. One is inbound marketing, and I'm sure you've heard this term recently. Uh, it's a brand new type of marketing in which you, the marketer, don't actually reach out and touch anyone. There's a reason that direct mail spending is forecast to drop 40% in this country during the next three years. It doesn't work. Direct mail, uh, direct marketers do cartwheels if they get a 2% response rate to their direct mail. I can't think of any other industry that rejoices in a 98% failure rate but direct marketing does. Inbound marketing is the idea of getting people to come to you without your even asking, because other people ask them, recommend them to you, either their peers, through their blogs, through their tweets, through their Facebook posts, or Google, uh, or Bing, with all uh, due respect to our, our keynote speaker this morning, through, the, uh, through search algorithms that identify your content as being important. Emphasize that important content is the key. If you search for personal computer, by the way, on Google, you'll find that of the top 20 search results, only one of them is a company that makes personal computers. All of the results are about useful information about how to buy, configure, and optimize personal computers. Inbound marketing is about getting people to come to you because you have an asset that's of value to them and they find you, whether through a link from another person or through a search engine. Then there's traditional outbound marketing and that's changing as well. How many of you have used LinkedIn to find an in to a company that you couldn't get into through some other means? LinkedIn is wonderful. LinkedIn has a unique approach to company profiles. It profiles companies according to the people who work there. So how, how often do uh, sales reps run into the problem of, I can't find the right person? Well, through LinkedIn, you often can find the right person because you're going in through the back door. So traditional outbound marketing is also being changed by this idea of enhancing the lead qualification process by using other social channels so that you know more about that lead once the person actually comes into your funnel. So um, whether you're selling up or whether you're selling down, if you're going to be successful with B2B social marketing, you're going to need buy-in, either buy-in from the C-suite or buy-in below from people to execute on your behalf. So we're going to talk for a minute here about selling social media to B2Bs. Um, I start by selling the story. And social media is a story about velocity, about the speed of change. Uh, it took the internet four years to reach 50 million users. Facebook added 200 million users in less than a year. Uh, social media is a story about adoption by business for business. 80% of companies use social media to recruit. Social media is a story about the wisdom of the crowds. Uh, studies show that Wikipedia is as accurate as Encyclopedia Britannica. And social media is a story about increased credibility. 78% um, of consumers trust peer recommendations, only 14% trust advertisements, right? That's the story. But it doesn't mean that selling social media is one size fits all. In my experience building the business case at organizations, you can put most corporate cultures in these four different groups. And I'm going to suggest a basic plan of attack based on the personality at hand. So for organizations that want to maintain strict management oversight, I would recommend a solution that channels social media 
through their existing external communications apparatus. Uh, for those organizations that are regulated, uh, you cannot rely on Twitter to satisfy audit trails. So you're going to need to secure some sort of third-party system to be able to store those communications to satisfy regulators. Uh, for those organizations that are exploratory and curious, and uh, my friend Ron Plouffe calls these his running with scissors clients. <laughs> um, for these guys, policy and training. Go right there. And for the sweet spot, the company that embraces change, the company that realizes the rules and regs haven't even caught up with how new this stuff is. They realize Facebook is redefining the concept of privacy. They realize people are going to make mistakes and there are going to be some hands slapped, right? For those companies where you don't have to worry, get right into how you're going to measure the effectiveness of the program so that you can sustain or grow that marketing spend over time. When we were researching the book, we, uh, we discovered that social media marketers, those who were fans of social media, had a tougher time selling the concept into their organizations than uh, those in consumer media, where I'd say social media has sort of uh, uh, jumped the shark, if you will. Uh, a couple of reasons for this. One is that some B2B companies can count their number of customers on their fingers and toes. And if that's the case, social media may actually not be a good choice for you. Uh, your best social media may be the golf course, in fact. And, uh, and I recommend, if that's the case, if you're selling $100 million aircraft engines, then uh, maybe that is the best way to cultivate your customers. Uh, another is that many uh, uh, B2B companies are family-owned. The owners have been around for a long time. They know who their market is. Uh, in fact, they probably don't know who their market is outside of North America. And they may not even know who the potential customers are whom they've never heard of. So how do you convince these people that social media is at least worth investing a small amount of money into? We're going to give you a few different approaches here. One is what I call shock and awe. Shock and awe is simply putting a, uh, something like Twitter fall in front of your executives and showing them that people are already talking about you, talking about your competitors, and talking about your industry. JetBlue did this two years ago when they were considering how to make a big, uh, how big a decision to make, an investment to make in social media. They brought the executives into a conference room during an offsite meeting and put a screen like this, Twitter fall up there, and showed all the people who were talking about JetBlue. And very quickly, uh, it, it, that will very quickly catalyze a management team when they see people saying things both positive and negative about them and realizing that they're not part of the discussion. If you're a company that can do this, and not all companies that can, it works very well. And uh, this is a great tool to communicate the immediacy because they will actually see visually opportunities pass them by if they don't engage. Cost per lead. Uh, there is data that indicates, quite a bit of data that indicates that social media campaigns have a much lower cost per lead. The reason is the funnel. Now the traditional sales funnel, as you know, begins at the top with a lot of largely unqualified people, and then there's a process by which we qualify them, and in the process, most of them go away. There's a lot of waste in the sales funnel. Uh, social media is destroying the sales funnel. And that is because people can do all kinds of research about you before they actually engage with you. You're no longer the source of all education about your product and about your, about your technology and about your industry. People may actually come to you with a check in hand. 
So if your content assets are sufficient, if you're giving people the tools to share that will do the education, let them educate themselves, and people love to educate themselves, they don't want to talk to a salesperson. They'd rather talk to a salesperson when they're ready to make a buy. Your cost of sales is lower because the amount of time and effort that goes into closing that deal occurs at the end of the sales cycle instead of at the top of that funnel. So the difference between um, traditional marketing and social B2B marketing is kind of like the difference between cash and credit. If I pay in cash, the only record I have of that transaction is the receipt, paper receipt. Now I know I bought it, the person who sold it to me knows they sold it to me, but there's no way for other people to find out about it, right? It's not a digital transaction. On the other hand, online channels are traceable, right? I'm sorry, offline channels are untraceable and online interactions are discoverable, right? Online interactions are a type of digital transaction and they're discoverable through search, they can be shared with others, and they have the potential to explode the number of touch points people have to engage with your brand and come back to your site. So some examples here. You know, public gatherings are great. Uh, the research shows that public gatherings are a highly effective way of B2B marketing. Uh, but once they're over, they're over, right? And an online gathering generates discoverable threads that can reap dividends in perpetuity, right? Printed sales collateral used to be the centerpiece of a B2B marketing program. The problem is it only works, one, if you could get it in the right hands, and two, if that person could actually find their brochure when they needed to make a purchase, right? But when the information is available online, it gets found by prospects. You didn't even know needed it in the first place. And if it's appropriately search optimized, they can find it through search. And when you gather up, right, all these online interactions that are left behind as a result, you get a more accurate demographic and psychographic profile of your customer than ever before. Social media, you know, when I'm selling social media to the CFO, the message is social media is a way to do more with less. Because bytes are cheaper than atoms, bytes are more environmentally responsible, bytes are easier to change, bytes are on demand, right? In retrospect, if we look at the productivity gains we saw from the fax machine or from email, they're fairly obvious, right? But if you look at the gains you get from something like an activity stream, that's less, counter that's less intuitive, right? Right now, we think of Facebook as an activity stream, but we've really only just scratched the surface of how activity streams integrated into workflow processes will fundamentally change the way we collaborate. Social networks can be private too, right? When information flows freely, redundancy is minimized, information is available on demand, and organizations can operate more efficiently. So here today, we're talking about social marketing to the business customer, but social media can ease much of the pain inside organizations as well because it reduces the loss of fidelity and friction associated with sharing information inside organizations. Now this is a product called Salesforce Chatter. It's a hosted private social networking tool that's used behind the firewall in companies to allow them to collaborate. And they released uh, last month the results of their customer survey. 
And here's what they found. Uh, companies that use Chatter send 28% less email. Companies that use Chatter have 32% fewer meetings. And companies that use Chatter, uh, half of them said they could find information faster. So when we're selling social media in the boardroom, it's also important to look at the productivity gains from these tools. Avery Dennison is using Lotus Connections, which is a proprietary solution from IBM uh, to accommodate internal social networking. And uh, John Hopkins Applied Physics Lab is using Elge software, which is an open source platform and it hosts an internal social network where a lot of proprietary, highly secretive, defense-oriented information is shared. Companies have spent the last 20 years trying to figure out how to capture organizational knowledge, and they've done it through a top-down process that involved interviews and basically trying to convince employees who have been there a long time that if they tell the company everything they know and capture it in a knowledge base, that it's good for their career. Now, if you can imagine being the employee, what you're hearing is that I'm going to tell you everything I know, and then you're going to lay me off. And that's one of the reasons that the top-down knowledge management didn't work. Turns out, though, the bottom-up knowledge management, the way Eric described it with some of these tools, is phenomenally successful because people love to share when it elevates their personal uh, visibility within the organization. This is beginning to be validated by some fairly reputable companies, such as McKinsey, which discovered that fully networked enterprises are not only more likely to be market leaders or to be gaining market share, but also use management practices that lead to higher margins uh, than those of companies that use web in more limited ways. That was a big survey of over 3,000 corporate leaders they did late last year. Powers Watson survey companies that are highly effective at communication have 47% higher total returns to shareholders over the last five years. And that's because these companies spend less time in meeting hell and CC of death. And you've all been involved in those, right? They spend time, instead of, of hoarding information, they share information. And it turns out that when people get credit for sharing information, they share even more information. It's totally transformative the way these companies work. So it's difficult to make the argument for B2B social media with managers who are disengaged and don't use these tools in their daily life because they don't use these tools and they don't understand how they work, right? They don't understand why they're important. So I, mean, I would argue that it's actually incumbent on us, it's incumbent on all of you to actually do the research and show them in unequivocal terms how social media is being used by their customers, by their competitors, uh, by their regulators. And it's not enough to just trot out a bunch of B2B case studies from different industries, you've got to actually look at how their customers are using these tools. In our book, we walk you through step-by-step step the process of building the business case with real research, but we're going to hit a few highlights right now on this. The first is, the first thing I would do to build the business case with management that's largely disengaged is start with search. And I would take off my PR hat or my marketing hat, and I would think like a customer. And I would ask myself, you know, what, are, what terms are my, is my customer searching? And I'd figure out what buyer-oriented terms they're searching at all stages of the sales funnel. 
in the awareness stage, in the consideration stage, in the decision-making phase. What are the different terms that they're searching and how can I make sure that I'm getting found there, right? If I start searching those and I don't come up anywhere, that's gonna be a very powerful argument for management to start publishing content online because they're not getting found online. And by the way, they're not searching on your company name. You get that one for free. Yeah, um, Google gives you the name of your company for free. So if I search the name of your company and you come up first, that's not SEO, right? And if I search a broad-oriented keyword, like for solder, I mean, Indium's not optimizing for solder because the probability of conversion is so low. So they're optimizing for these long-tail keywords that have very low search volume, but very high probability of conversion. I mentioned uh, outbound marketing and how, the, uh, how social media revolutionizes outbound marketing. The simplest thing you can do is listen. You can listen on Twitter. You can listen on uh, Google blog search, Tectorati. You can listen with RSS feeds. You can look, uh, try this, try going to Twitter search and look for keywords like, uh, can anyone recommend? Does anyone know? Broken printer. My favorite was the, uh, the auto dealer in upstate New York who did regional Twitter searches and he looked for people who were using terms like crash and accident. Uh, first he would contact the tweeters and make sure that they were okay and then he would send them a link to a 10 point list of what you should look for in an auto body repair shop. So happened he met all 10 criteria. That's a new kind of outbound marketing. You can do the same thing on LinkedIn, LinkedIn Signal. You can look at different our vertical industries on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is wonderful for segmenting its audience by industry. Look at what people are talking about. Look at what search terms they're looking for. Very often, if you go into any LinkedIn group, you'll find that one of the most common topics people ask for is, can someone recommend? Bingo. It's not information overload, it's filter failure. Clay Shirky, here comes everybody. Um, when the U.S. Um, Armed Forces want to look for potential recruiting candidates, the search term, and it took us a long time to find this, is just graduated plus scholarship. Because that would be someone who has a high school education and could benefit from the GI Bill. From the Kellogg Foundation, which is trying to address the problem of disengaged youth, it's um, I'm pregnant, right? That's a good one for finding those folks. Um, so you've got to really nail these keywords, and it takes time, it takes research. And the problem is so many companies just show up on social media. You know, they just show up and hang a Twitter badge on their page and show, show up with a Facebook page without really doing any research first, right? So they don't even know if their customers are there. Um, now, when you're selling social media to disengaged managers, and this is a tip that came to me from a guy named Pete Blackshaw. And he used to run uh, social media over at Nielsen, and now he's the head of social media at, ne at Nestle. And uh, you know what they, their brand jacking that they just came out of, and they hired him to run the whole shebang. And he said, when I'm selling social media, uh, my measurement platform, to a company that doesn't get social media, I position it as an extension of what they're doing already. So one of the ways you could do this, if you were in PR, and the value that you deliver at this point, as far as the C-suite is concerned, is bagging stories, bagging media placements. Hop onto Twitter and find out if the outlets you're pitching are on Twitter. 
right? See if they're there. See who they're following. See who's following them. Build a little influence map. And position Twitter as a way of being a more effective media relations professional. But be aware that the nature of influence has changed. And as we heard in the keynote this morning, TechCrunch is a more uh, significantly greater influencer on, on awareness of the Bing search engine than the New York Times. That's true in a lot of your industries as well. It may be that the real influencers aren't the people who have the big numbers, but they're the people who have the important followers. I worked with a publishing company at one point that bought two websites that had a total of uh, 9 million monthly visitors. They got them for a song, and they thought that they had, uh, they had lucked out. Turns out there's a reason they got them for a song. There was no money in them. All those nine million people were people who didn't buy anything. And it turned out that that company had another website that had 1 20th as much traffic that did over a million dollars a year in advertising. Why is that? That company was full, of that website was being visited by people with budgets. So the people who influence your decisions and the people who spend the dollars very often are in the long tail. You know, this isn't Arbitron anymore. We're not in the age of mass. We're moving into the age of specific. And that means being able to profile and segment your buyers and know who are the people who are going to buy from you is more important than just throwing mud against the wall. You cannot measure the effectiveness of B2B social media by old media standards. Let's talk about um, some case studies. I love case studies. We've got dozens of case studies in the book. We had a chance to talk to all kinds of B2B companies that are doing really creative things. And uh, one of them that we loved was Employee Screen. Now, Employee Screen is a company that's in the background check business. It's a highly fragmented industry with over 1,000 companies in the US alone who specialize in employee background checks. It's all kinds of nuances of that business. There are legal issues, there are interpersonal issues, uh, there are regulatory issues. And so HR professionals, which is their audience, need to learn a lot about the ins and outs of background checking. So what Employee Screen did, uh, they had a blog already, they started taking content from their blog and they started shooting some videos and doing some podcasts and they chunked all this together into a website they called Employee Screen University. Now here's a tip for you in B2B, education is a very powerful motivator, particularly with technical audiences. They're constantly in need of education. So this university metaphor was very powerful for them. They didn't create a whole lot of new content for this, but they packaged content they already had into something that resembled a course. That Employees Green University now generates over 50% of the leads to their site. They don't advertise anymore. They don't need to. They have more leads than they can handle. It comes in because they establish their credibility through Employees Green University. And then when those now uh, more smarter HR people want to make a decision, they go to a credible source, which is the one that educated them in the first place. Right, so they're not shilling, they're not marketing, they're not publicizing. They're putting up information that will get found by people who have an immediate purchasing need to generate a lead. Back in 2005, when I was working on my, uh, 2006, when I was working on my first book about social media, I encountered a blog. Blogging was still relatively novel at that point. It was called Emerson Process Control, written by a guy named Jim Cahill. And he had headlines on his entries like this. Velocity colors are not the answer to thermal, uh, what does that say? Thermal well resonance. 
how to reduce discontinuities, nonlinearities, and oscillations in split range control. This is a blog that's oriented toward people who buy process management systems that go through entire manufacturing plants. These are million dollar plus type of investments. Jim Cahill is not an engineer. Jim Cahill is a PR guy. He's a communications professional who's smart enough about the, uh, the topic, about the industry that he covers, that he can stop engineers in the hall and say, what's new? What's going on with your customers? What's hot lately? And then he'll debrief them. Then he'll write this up as blog entries. Over 700 blog entries he's posted over the last six years. The Emerson Process Control blog, which is about process management systems for large manufacturing facilities, gets 3,000 visitors a day. And about 60 emails a week come into Jim Gayhill, and about five of those emails have direct business relevance, such as the one he got last year asking Emerson to bid on a nine-figure contract. Jim says that he has that email on his wall next to a sign that says, is there any value in blogging? By the way, there's been value for Jim Cahill, who is now the head of social media for uh, Emerson Process Control. This is a wonderful example of a simple tool, a blog, being used to communicate expertise that leads directly to business results. So up to now, we've been talking mostly about the concept of content marketing, the idea that you'd fill the void with useful, helpful information that would help uh, a customer make an informed buying decision at the point of need. But that's not the only way to go. Um, this is a company that is absolutely killing it with its own branded social network. Um, this is the SAP Community Network. They have two million total, network, uh, total members. They're growing at a rate of 30,000 new members each month. Uh, those members come from 200 countries and territories worldwide. There are 6,000 posts per day in 200 plus discussion forums. And um, they have one million unique visitors per month. So what's the value? How does that help them? Okay, here's the value. And I'll wrap this up with the stories that we started with. Uh, the social network is a way for them to promote peer-to-peer -peer communications. So now one customer in the chemical logistics company can talk to another customer in the chemical logistics uh, industry. And what do you think is more trusted? customer-to-customer -customer communications or sales-to-customer communications. So it's a story of credibility. Um, they're using it to improve product performance. In the network, you can star rate any of their products. Now, when you think about that, you think, oh my god, I would never put star ratings in my social network because people would rate my products poorly. Ah, that's exactly the point. Those products that get rated poorly right, become a badge of shame for the product manager and the brand team that are responsible for that product. If they can't get people to rate it highly or fix the product, the product ought to be killed because there's no reason to be selling poor performing products. So it's the wisdom of the crowd. Um, they're using social networks to educate customers, partners, and employees. At system integrators who are hired to install SAP, when they bring on a new hire, they're able to train that new hire by just sitting them down at the computer in front of the social network and saying, spend, spend the next six weeks reading everything in this network so that you can train yourself. So it's the story of self-service. And uh, you know, last but not least, they're shortening their sales cycles because anybody who is a 
member of the stakeholder purchasing committee can get their questions answered here, and they can respond faster to change because if a product isn't performing, they don't have to wait to see that the product isn't performing, they see it immediately. So at the end of the day, they've basically lowered cost of goods sold, and they've removed the burden of making the market solely with direct sales. You'll have to excuse us for a moment while we upgrade our software. <laughs> oh my gosh. I hate, I hate personal computers. Uh, so right. now, lest you think the communities are easy, let me, let me say, say this. Uh, communities are hard. Probably the hardest thing to do in social media is to start and establish a successful social community. And it's getting a lot harder because of two things, LinkedIn and Facebook. Uh, if you're going to start a social community today, your own branded community, you have to ask yourself, why wouldn't you start it on Facebook or LinkedIn? That said, there are uh, many good examples of branded social communities that serve very specific long-tail uh, long B2B customers. My favorite is called Rigid Forum. It has over 35,000 members who are plumbers and woodworkers, and over half a million discussions that they've had about different aspects related to their craft. Uh, this has been very good for Rigid Brands, which owns Rigid Forum, and which sells plumbing and woodworking supplies. They've created essentially a word-of-mouth community built around being a helpful resource. Nevertheless, communities are a different uh, game today than they were just a couple of years ago. Right, it's a huge amount of work to maintain the momentum of a community. And the SAP community has four full-time community managers. Uh, they're not 100% allocated on the network, but they are working on a daily basis to weed out off-topic conversations and fertilize on-topic conversations. That said, if you wanted to use social networks for B2B and you wanted to chime into an existing social network, uh, LinkedIn is, uh, is the one to look at first. And one of the things you may not be aware of, you can actually search LinkedIn to find people that you may know through others uh, that are in a specific industry. It's, a, it's a, a service called LinkedIn Signal. So I'll give you a little demo here. If you go to LinkedIn and you synchronize your Twitter with your LinkedIn, most people think that the value of that is syndicating tweets to LinkedIn. Uh-uh, I'll show you what the value of that is. If I synchronize my Twitter with my LinkedIn, and then I, 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 I push this little search updates button up here, I get a little drop up. Now here's a few ser searches that I've been working with for this plastics company I'm working with. Purging compounds or injection molding or extrusion or blow molding or plastic processing. I don't have any first degree connections in LinkedIn that are in any of these businesses. But because I've synchronized my Twitter with my LinkedIn, I can then search Twitter based on the profile information of the LinkedIn user. So watch how that looks. So now I'm searching Twitter, not just by keyword, but by network, second or third degree connection, by company. I see the different companies that those people are at. I can look at industry. I can even look at recency. Was it in the last week, the last month, the last year? And now I can see who in my network may know someone in my network or in another network to rope in. LinkedIn rocks. This if you're is a, in B2B, just, I'm sorry Eric to step on you, but if you're in B2B, you have to know how LinkedIn works. They just crossed the 100 million member threshold. They are Facebook for grown-ups. And uh, I find myself spending more and more time on LinkedIn and less and less time on Facebook because of its relevance to B2B. 
The, the, the example of LinkedIn Signal is a glimpse of things to come. Right now, we're all focused on what we're going to fill the status update field with and what we're going to tweet. But really, the value is cross-correlating data sets to find opportunities, right? In this case, I was able to sync up my LinkedIn connections with my Twitter and find who in my Twitter actually has business value, right? So I think that will increasingly become the opportunity moving forward. So we're going to close out by talking about what's next. And uh, what's next is, well, it's kind of passe to say mobile is next. And B2B companies may think that they get a, a mulligan on this because, uh, well, B2B, you know, who uses mobile devices in B2B? Well, how many of you here have consulted your BlackBerry within the last hour? Uh, in fact, everybody uses mobile devices in B2B. They're ubiquitous. Not only are smartphones the fastest growing consumer phenomenon in history by an order of magnitude, but for business users, they simply are the way that they choose to communicate. Fewer and fewer of our communications take place through desktop computers. So, okay, now Foursquare is valuable, and that's great if you want a discount on, a, uh, on an Italian sub. But how does that work for B2B? Well, Hoover's has a service now that will deliver uh, information about a company that you may want to be prospecting uh, depend, depending on your location. You're a sales rep and one of your companies that's in your territory happens to be nearby where you are now, you can look up their profile on Hoover's. USA Today has an app now that will tell business travelers when they arrive in an airport, what are the business services that are available to them nearby, the best hotels, the best uh, business uh, uh, copy shops, business supply places. There is a company that does rental offices. You can rent offices by, uh, by the hour. They have over 60,000 downloads of their app, so the people in any location can look up and find out where can I rent an office that's within walking distance of where I am right now. Those are just three early examples of how mobility is coming to play. And I think that, that we have to think creatively, if we're in B2B, about how will we appeal to that mobile audience. One more statistic. The message that comes in as an instant message is uh, yeah, orders of magnitude, I don't remember the exact number, but something like eight times as likely to be, or I think 90, over 90% 90 of messages that come in as instant messages are read compared to about 20% that come in as emails. So if, if a customer, and we know that email is permission-based marketing, if a customer is willing to give you instant messaging permission-based marketing, your chance of getting your message read is much higher than if you send them an email. Um, and uh, LinkedIn announced a deal with Hoover's in January to integrate LinkedIn into the Hoover's database and vice versa. So you could imagine a, a uh, application like near here on the, on the mobile device being able to see not just companies by revenue, by industry, or by category, but also if you know someone who knows someone there that could get you a meeting. Um, other areas that I think uh, you know, B2Bs could benefit from mobile, um, price accrued, more than $100 a barrel now. Uh, for those B2Bs that use heavy or bulky raw materials in their production, imagine the types of incentives that a vendor or supplier could offer those customers that are a short drive away. You could include the shipping. Um, I, I do not think it's going to be too far off till organizations start to use this data to offer better incentives to customers that are close by. And then just two other things to wrap up mobile. 
Um, if you are B2B and your product is an impulse purchase, like lunchroom supplies or office supplies, uh, these are some places that you should list your company so that you come up in mobile search. 80% uh, of smartphone users research purchasing decisions within a 10 to 20 mile radius of their location. And the other thing is, you know, is your service local? Are you a local service provider? Because uh, if you go to Yelp, you know, you can see not just restaurants, but you can see service providers as well. You're starting to see attorneys in there. You're starting to see doctors in there. You're starting to see advertising agencies, PR agencies in there. Um, so one of the ways you can start to optimize yourself on a, a place like Yelp is not by keyword, but something like hours of operation. Because if you're nine to five and I search by open now and I'm searching at 8 a.m., I'm not gonna see you, right? So these are some opportunities where B2Bs can start looking at mobile. Keeping in mind that a lot of B2B companies are retail companies. Staples is a B2B company. Marriott is a B2B company. These are companies that have a strong location dependence. We're gonna do a quick, just quick on metrics. We hear about this all the time in ROI and it's an endless debate. There's an arms race going on right now in metrics and it's called likes and followers. How many likes and how many followers can we accrue? Well, I'll tell you what, and talk to you afterwards, I'll tell you how you can get 2,000 followers in a day. I'll tell you this in the lobby afterwards if you wanna know. They're not gonna do you any good at all. But if you're, they're not gonna have any value whatsoever to your business, but if your boss is, is uh, uh, making it part of your performance metrics, as some of them do, it's easy. The important thing isn't numbers, the important thing is value. And for some people, numbers are important. Chicago Mercantile Exchange has 760,000 followers on Twitter. Biggest B2B Twitter following we have encountered yet. That's a great value to them because they're essentially a news service. That's what they want to be. But a company that has a high quality of followers uh, can have a very much smaller number and get much more out of them. I prefer to look at engagement uh, metrics. What are engagement metrics? Comments, page views per visit, repeat visits, retweets, those are all indications of engagements. And for many B2B companies, those are gonna be much more meaningful than the number of Twitter followers that you gather. So just to wrap it up, um, in social, we have more confidence in communities than we do in individuals, right? And here's an example in the B2C world, right? A restaurant on Yelp with like maybe a four-star rating and 300 different customer reviews would be more impressive than a restaurant with a five-star rating and only 12 customer reviews, right? We crowdsource intelligence. So for the same reason, right, a Twitter feed or a Facebook page or a LinkedIn group managed by the PR section of a company is gonna have only marginal impact, right? Um, in this environment, it's the organizations that can draw the line between private and proprietary, right, that are gonna have a huge advantage. Um, and by the way, you know, the road to getting there is through digital, digital literacy and through policy, because you can't draw the line unless you understand what's happening, and you can't teach others to draw the line if you haven't trained them. And I think this is a really critical issue because there's a lot of conferences like these where we come and we network and we get this high level thought you know, leadership, which is very valuable. 
But um, you know, the opportunities to actually learn how to SEO a website for mobile search, or how to launch a blog and install a Facebook like button, or a tweet this button, you know, there's a real shortage of those types of opportunities out there. Um, because in social marketing, the devil is in the details, totally. And I want to say, you know, if you haven't taken any of the seminars from PRSA, it is the only organization I know of that regularly does training programs where you bring your laptop, log on, and actually get told, you know, led by the hand with exercises and Q&A on how to use these tools. Um, and even that's not good enough because you have to train management as well. Right? So they understand that by blocking access to social networks, they're actually stunting worker productivity. Right? They have to get that message. And you're probably not going to have more than an hour to make your point. So if you don't have the social media research at that point, if you can't show them exactly how it applies to them, where the opportunities are, and make a clear business case, you're not going to be able to win those buy-in and that resources. To build on one point Eric made, business.com did a survey last year that found that over 70% of B2B companies uh, focused their social media uh, efforts, the ownership of the social media is in the marketing department. Now, that's going to change and it's going to have to change because social media is not a marketing function. If you were here for uh, Quentin's presentation, in fact, just before lunch, excellent presentation on crisis management and how uh, that, and how really effective crisis management means involving everybody in the company in being able to mobilize around message to deal with an opportunity or a problem. Uh, and I'll take us back to the very first example we gave you. Uh, what has made Indium successful in generating a six-fold increase in leads is not because the marketing department was talking, it's because the engineers were talking. And Rick Short at Indium will tell you that his job is to connect the customers with the engineers and then get out of the way. That's how it works. Uh, and we have a book on this subject that came out just a few months ago and which will be, uh, which is actually on sale out in the lobby. We will be uh, around at three o'clock at the next break to do some signings if you'd like to um, purchase any copies. And we love your Amazon reviews. God, we love Amazon reviews. And uh, we love just to hear from you, positive, negative, uh, what you think of it, and what we could put in the next book, Social Media to the Business Customer, Volume 2. And if you want to get a free uh, chapter, chapter one is available for free at b2bsocialmediabook.com. Thank you. Good job. We have about five minutes for questions. Yes, Quentin. Yeah, have you found there's a big cultural difference between B2B clients and B2C clients? I, I worked for a real estate firm once. Both um, selling commercial property, office blocks, etc., and also selling houses. And the, the offices they operate at are quite different. You go into the, the, the commercial one, it's steel, marble, and glass. You go across the square to uh, the same firm selling houses, they've got flush carpeting, over panel walls, and they're expecting a completely different sort of client, making a completely different sort of decision. Well, one of the risks is overgeneralizing about B2B versus B2C. And as I pointed out, you know, Google is a B2B company. 
I mean, there are companies that we think of as being consumer businesses that actually do most of their business uh, with other businesses. 80% of Dell's sales are to other businesses. So uh, it, it, I would say that as a rule, from my experience, no, there's not a, there's not a huge difference in how B2B, B2C companies uh, look at their customers. I say the difference is the customer, uh, the, the number of customers and the transaction volume. So uh, B2B companies that have customers that are, are spending a million dollars or more per transaction will tend to have uh, a, a more uh, highly, I guess, engaged sales force. They'll know those customers much better. And the sales force, frankly, you know, has to be much smarter about the products they sell. You know, I tend to draw the line more between um, uh, whether or not it's an impulse purchase or a considered purchase, because you have those in B2B and B2C, and I think you see more cultural alignment along those lines than along whether or not they're B2B or B2C. I mean, someone who is selling a considered process, a, a considered product, I mean, that's, they're fighting a war. I mean, that's an ongoing battle. Whereas, you know, someone who's selling an impulse product, I mean, it's just a whim. Can we squeeze in one more? One more? One more question. Yes, ma'am. Uh, well, it's another point. I think, I think it was uh, quote Quentin again who said in his presentation, it's not marketing anymore. We should call it all public relations. Um, does it spell the end of marketing? No, not at all. It, is, it, it does not spell the end of what marketing does. It means that marketing actually is more important than ever because customer relationships become, become uh, uh, infused and saturated through everything the company does. Uh, every, every company, in fact, everybody in the company should be a marketer. Uh, but I think the marketing function is going to change rather dramatically. What do you think? Well, I agree. But I also would say that you know, it does change the function of the marketer because the, func the marketer becomes more an internal communications counselor to others than than a, a mouthpiece, you know, because the more people you can get, the, the more you can tell people this can be public, this should be proprietary, the more people start using social media to do their day-to-day -day jobs, the more nodes they leave behind on the social graph that leads back to you. Think of it this way. Marketing used to be responsible for media training, maybe five to ten people in the company. Today you're responsible for media training the entire company. Is that an opportunity? I think so. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com on Twitter at OnTheRecord, or send email to OnTheRecordPodcast at gmail.com.